Welcome to an in-focus edition of On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I've been increasingly curious about student success across higher education, how it has changed, and what institutions are doing to engage and retain a new generation of learner. I'd like to thank the folks at NAC for bringing this conversation together. I encourage you to go to joinnac.com where you can capitalize on your NACs and make the most of your skills by helping your peers. Now, on to the episode. You know, for those that listen to the podcast, I, you know, I go down these paths and it's really about, I guess, what interests me and maybe selfishly, that's the benefit of, of hosting your own is that you can go down these paths of, of interest and find rabbit holes and you won't kind of want to keep going down them. Um, I am keenly interested in higher education, but more importantly, how we are supporting young students, early career professionals, as I like to think of them, and the way in which they are developing, the way that which they are acquiring knowledge, and then how that applies to their ability to successfully transfer over to uh, sort of a work life outside of, of campus life. And so I want to continue the conversation. I've gotten to know Samir from NAC uh, for quite some time now, and it really got me thinking, Samir, as we sort of just jump into this, about how we understand the ecosystem that is higher education and how it's changed so dramatically. And everything has really changed since the pandemic. Um, but we higher ed was kind of due for a reset in a lot of ways, people might say. <laughs> Maybe this just kind of spurred it on. I want, in your sort of description of what NAC is and sort of your, your side of it as an, as an entrepreneur, use the pandemic as sort of the middle um, of the bookends, right? That Talk sort of pre-pandemic and the way in which we thought about providing support services, peer tutoring, right? These sort of elements of NAC, which you'll go into, and how that got sort of amplified or, you know, the pandemic was a bit of an accelerant to saying, we need to look at the way in which we are supporting, not just supporting, but finding sustainable solutions. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's obviously the pandemic was unprecedented and sort of thrusted the world, not just higher ed, into a new way of thinking and having to operate and what have you. I would say kind of pre-pandemic, one of the things that, you know, we've been in the business now for eight years. So original proof of concept idea was 2014. We launched, uh, sort of incorporated the business in 15, launched the product in 16. So we've kind of seen higher ed over the last almost decade um, in going through these various changes. And just before we started NAC, I was just a recent grad. So kind of been on a couple different sides of the table from that standpoint. And what I started to notice is, you know, as things started to get in action for NAC and we started to kind of take flight with the venture, you know, this focus on the whole student became very important. Um, you've traditionally sort of had academic affairs on one side of the house, and then you've had student affairs on the other. And it's been sort of interesting to see them have to come together and think about how are we not just preparing students for in the classroom, but lifelong success, right? And it sort of goes back to this idea of what's the ROI of higher ed or just education. I think that's being questioned a lot, especially now, but to use the idea of the pandemic, it was already starting to sort of be this question that people were percolating in their minds of, should I go to college? What's the value? Is it worth the price tag? Blah, blah, blah. And then over time, as the pandemic hit, I think that got exacerbated because folks said, well, I'm not going to get the full value. I'm not going to get the full experience. What's Is this really worth it for me? And I think institutions quickly had to think about ways to you know, pivot and adapt. And I think a lot of that came, came about by providing additional wraparound value-add services for students. 
And something like NAC, which is a platform to provide peer-to-peer tutoring where students on a campus are helping other students on campus, fully provided and sponsored by the university, kind of provides this perfect middle ground where the institution gets to be involved in providing a support service, but the students are really at the core of it, helping one another. And I think what what we saw was that institution said, hey, this is a great way to go to a student or a group of students or the entire campus and say, we want to do more for you to drive connection, to drive a sense of belonging on one side, to drive economic impact as a tutor on the other side, to be able to really enable access to support when and where students need it. Enter, you know, COVID, flexible learning, all these sorts of themes become more and more top of mind, not just for institutions, but as students think about the way in which they want to learn and ultimately what they're willing to pay for. And I feel like higher ed was so afraid of commingling the thought of business into higher ed, but in reality, they are a business in a sense, right? Obviously, most are a nonprofit, but if you think about it, who's paying? It's the student. The student's ultimately your customer. And I think there's this renewed focus on what does a student want and what do they need? And as much as they should anticipate what students want and need, they have to listen closely. And honestly, we've seen the industry move very quickly, relatively speaking, in terms of how large it is and how bureaucratic they can be, um, to be very thoughtful and listening um, to their students. And, you know, that's obviously where NAC has entered the picture and has said, you know, has really been a tool for institutions to kind of respond to some of those needs and, and wants that students have. Uh, as we look. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was going to say it made me think, Samir. I think about learning traditionally or historically, right? The power differential being proctored to, right? Sort of you're telling me as the professor what I need to know. That there's a real shift here. And 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 I don't know if this was the intent right out of the gate. And I want to find out a little bit about your learning journey as a student, because you were an, a recent grad and then you decided, right, to launch NAC is to say there's something about the change in power, the power differential or the perceived power differential in higher ed that says, if you and I are are peers, there's a different way in which I'm engaging with that material because you're, you're a friend, you're a peer, right? We are both on campus in a way that feels much more real life to me, especially when we think about the gig economy and the way in which people are working post, uh, you know, higher education. Touch on that a little bit about sort of that. I don't know if it's a secret sauce and if that's even the way to couch it, but it does feel like if you had to start from scratch and building whatever higher ed is to be in the future, learning from one another does feel, it just feels right. It does not feel like we're doing something that was started a hundred years ago and just trying to fit it into today's context. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you... You think about tribal knowledge, the whole, you know, learning through osmosis and and just sort of being around people. That's what humans want. And that's ultimately how humans have evolved, right? Is like literally caveman days, like people are watching and learning and and from each other. Um, Later on, you started to have the notion of universities where, you know, you've got this auditorium setting or sort of amphitheater like view where people are crowded around with a lecture. But at the end of the day, a lot of that value and rich learning experience comes from commingling with those around you. And ultimately, that was the thesis around NAC originally, right? I was a first-generation immigrant American um, coming to the U.S. as a young child. I struggled a lot academically. I was not on track to do well whatsoever. My mom noticed that um, and said, okay, I'm going to give him individualized attention personally. 
uh, and immersed me in a ton of tutoring at the local library. And long story short, I ended up really going from, I feel so behind to, I actually feel ahead. And now I want to go back and help others. And that's ultimately kind of the original inspiration of, I want to build something to help others and to perpetuate education. I come from an Asian American background. Education is a huge part of our culture. And um, I've always sort of grown up in knowing the importance of it. But when I went to uh, high school, I left high school early and went to a community college full time as a, as a dual enrollment student. And I ran a student body president because I really wanted to get involved and I ended up winning. So student body president of college and high school. Um, and I started to sit on, you know, I was the board of trustees seat with the, the president as a student rep. And I started to hear about all these challenges around access to services and equity of services, student support, wraparound. And I started to think, wow, you know, higher ed has a noble mission, but they can't do it alone. And, and they have they have so much room for growth. Um, at this point, you know, this was early mid 2000s. The mindset was a lot different around implementing technology um, and the, the rapid pace to be able to deploy things was not as, as fast as, as it is today. But I, it really stuck with me that, you know, students just want to learn from each other. And the idea of a, of a professor is obviously needed. It's tutoring is never going to replace that. But it's this idea that, you know, the, the longer someone has been away from the the early principles, first principles of learning something, typically the less empathy they have, not because they're a mean or a bad person, but it's, we actually wrote a blog post on this called a curse of knowledge. If you, Rod, had just taken a course, it's not just fresh in your head, but you're probably a lot more energized and able to kind of talk to someone through it versus someone who's a PhD who studied, you know, very early principles of a subject 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? And now they're, they're there sitting on sort of a uh, pedestal because you have to learn from them. And it's intimidating to say, okay, let me go to Dr. Berger's class and talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. Sure. You know, some students are willing to do that, but most probably don't want to. Um, and that's where, you know, these wraparound supports and interventions come in to say, look, this peer can almost serve as a, as a triage or as an intermediary between the professor and the students, the notion of teaching assistance as well. And so students will much more likely be open to uh, sort of connecting and communicating with those that are not at that high of a level. Of course, you're going to have the overachievers that always want to go talk to the faculty and, and get to know them. But I would argue the vast majority of students feel much more comfortable working with a peer. And again, tying a full circle, that's just human nature. And what you're leading into is retention. Now we're talking about the economics of higher ed because, you know, it, it, this might sound trite, but, you know, I was just done and was telling you offline that I was you know, at the airport, so I flew in an airplane. I want to make sure my pilot is happy and <laughs> well-nourished and had a good night's sleep. Well, you know what? We kind of want our universities doing well because they then become the ecosystem that really sprouts that next generation um, for our for our economic development, right, across the globe. And so when what you're speaking about in the connective tissue of that experience now you're going into the retention side. I would imagine that as you started to investigate the rationale or the business case for NAC early on, that when you stumbled upon, I would think, correct me if I'm wrong, that wait a minute, if we do this right, we can actually sort of be best friends with admissions to some degree because we're helping to create a supportive network or system for a student to feel connected to their university because the attrition rates right for freshmen are, are pretty daunting in higher ed when you go behind the scenes and if you mm -hmm. can get them to stay yeah well, there's an economic impact on that campus absolutely i mean if you 
certainly an economic impact. I would argue it's a mission impact though, right? If the, the mission as a nonprofit of an institution is to educate the world or students and put out good stewards in society, it's not just economic. Obviously, universities have a bottom line going back to the comparison of being a business, but it's part of their mission. And at the end of the day, you look at these retention and graduation rates and for some cohorts of institutions, they're abysmal. And a lot of them, even the good ones, the big campuses, right? The, the, the flagships you can think about, 85, 90, 95% retention rate looks great. You disaggregate that data and you look at first-generation students, you look at low-income students, you look at historically underrepresented students, those retention graduation rates are not so good. And that's, again, another way in which we as a company are aiming to help solve sort of this, this crisis of ensuring that all students have access to support and, and quality education. And ultimately, you know, higher ed is the is on the supply chain of delivering talent to the world. And that's the way we look at it, right? You look at the job of higher ed is to push out not just grads, but but folks that are going to get a good job and contribute to the economy and to society um, and to bol you know bolster the GDPs wherever they may be. And in many ways, you know, the academic side is a big piece of it, but the social networks are a big piece of it too. There's been countless studies and I, I'm, a, I'm a living example of it. I was a pre-law student that studied criminology and law, right? And now I'm an entrepreneur that runs a company. Um, I was really only able to do this because of the social connections I made outside the classroom. I'm not knocking the curriculum. I actually started as a business student and I said, I don't want to learn business out of a textbook. Let me go study something I'm interested in. I can always get an internship or start a business or work at a company. And I did that. And it was a little risky um, because all my friends were like, oh, I want to go start a company. I'm going to go study marketing or management or entrepreneurship. But to me, it felt so disconnected from what business was to where I said, I'm going to study law and criminology. I find it interesting. I, I worked at the the county jail as part of research I did. But then throughout the my um, uh, college career, I interned at Apple. I started a t-shirt printing company. I interned at a music management company. I did things that I I was business related and real world related, but I was interested in. And by the time I graduated, I said, you know what, I'm going to hit pause on law school. And I got a job at Gartner, which is a huge market research uh, consulting firm and did sales there for about a year and a half before I started NAC, just under a year, actually, uh, before I started NAC. And I realized that those skills that I gained there and the people that I met along the way are what was going to really help set me up for success. I don't knock my experience at the University of Florida. It was incredible. The people that I met there are my co-founders today. But, you know, it's it's the mix of the in the classroom and the out of the classroom it goes back to this academic affairs and student affairs marriage that needs to happen, right? It, it becomes so political to, to say, well, one is so focused on just, you know, the curriculum, one is so focused on the touchy-feely, you know, social aspect. You need both. And um, in many, in many ways, if you don't kind of strike that healthy balance and bring those two sides together, implementing interventions, practices, et cetera, that are going to touch on both sides, I worry that institutions are not going to be able to retain students at the high rates that they need to be. It's not just about passing your classes. It's also about feeling connected and seeing others on campus that look like you or come from the same background to make you want to say, you know what, I feel good here and I want to actually graduate and engage and stay you know, on track to graduate long term. This conversation has been supported by our friends at NAC. Go to joinnac.com to capitalize on your NACs. Now, back to the show. One of the challenges, Samir, I think that a lot of companies face when they think about engaging with higher education is the 
perceived bureaucracy or the tradition or the legacy, right? And the time it might take, the institution, right? Sort of using that in a broad sweeping way and, and how that can intimidate, right? The runway or the, the potential success of a company. Take me sort of behind the scenes from, let's take it from an educator's perspective, being you being the educator, because I think traditionally we've had a thought about what tutoring is and maybe what it isn't. And we haven't really kind of flipped it around and said, well, wait a minute, what if we take a different angle at this? This could potentially not only solve an immediate here and, and now problem or challenge that a student is having, but my goodness, maybe this is this could be long-term for us, right? This is about sustainability and just sort of thinking about the way in which we provide services through a different uh, mechanism, right? With different levers uh, that can impact us financially and it can impact sort of the the perception of our university in a progressive manner. Take me inside the conversations with universities and the types of questions that either tell you or us that they're getting it in a different way. Maybe they were forced to the table a little bit because of the pandemic and just changes in people's value proper on higher ed. But I always think questions can indicate that somebody is leaning towards maybe a new direction. And have you seen questions change since NAC started by those that you've been trying to collaborate with? Absolutely. You know, I think um, no surprise, the idea of embracing digital virtual learning is key. When we first started NAC, um, we didn't even offer online tutoring. We offered just a, a, a platform to connect students online to offline, right? So you, you meet on NAC, you meet in person on campus. Um, that obviously changed. I think we were, uh, you know, it wasn't intentional, but it was on a roadmap to build an online classroom. And we just happened to have built it a year before COVID. Um, you know, not to say we couldn't have integrated with something like Zoom or, or what have you, but um, it went from early days of institutions saying, well, you know, we don't even care to support online tutoring just because, you know, students, it's not as efficacious and, you know, we need to have direct supervision of in students in person and sort of this skepticism of it. And then all of a sudden the world gets forced in a direction and pretty much every institution you talk to either has some online tutoring or is thinking very strongly about it, um, just given the stat, the, the state of everything. And, um, you know, so a lot of questions in the past were, you know, do you guys offer in person? And the answer was yes. And we still do offer in person. Um, but now the questions are like, what percentage of your tutoring is online? And, you know, what have you done in your online environment to make sure that it does support student learning and development for tutoring and what have you? And so, you know, and the same one for training tutors, right? We, we work with institutions and sort of take on building out a, a larger tutor network from their campus to help others on campus. And as part of that, we train their tutors. And before, you know, institutions were really doing that in person. Now we've got online modules. And so, you know, it sounds sort of obvious that online is the big piece, but you also start to think about, or we've also started to have institutions think more about those populations that I mentioned earlier, because if all retention rates and graduation rates are are questionably down um, because of COVID. When you again disaggregate that data, the ones that are going to hurt the most are those populations, the underrepresented, the first gen, the low income health students. Um, and so it's it is more of a focus on let's make sure extra make sure we're pulling those students up, right? Um, so to that sort of stuff, and um, overall, you know, I think it's been thankfully a blessing to our business, but at the same time, it's definitely not easy to get the right people at the table at an institution to have the right conversations. 
in a timeline that makes sense. You can't tell you how many times we hear institutions say, we love this, you know, time isn't right, which is understandable, but let's revisit this in 2024. And, you know, my question is, what's the cost of waiting? And if that's not an easy thing to answer, then I would ask them to really take a step back and understand what their goal is, right? And what their mission is. And it should be about serving every student. And there's just no way institutions can do it on their own. Are you finding that there's a change or an evolution in the tutor, right? The the student that wants to participate, I would think that there's a percentage of them that get as much out of it as the student that they are help, helping to support because of the engagement. You're spot on. I mean, I think one of the biggest things we um, have harped on since we started, and and this is kind of back to my personal story, right? I started struggling kind of as the learner, um, built enough confidence to say, you know what, if I could do it, let me help a few people. Maybe I'm not a master tutor, but I can help a few students. And, and I was going from, you know, failing algebra to mastering it, to helping other students who are failing it, to being in a passing state and instilling confidence. And in so many instances, we actually developed what we call a skills development program specifically for tutors. Um, and we're lucky enough to have ETS, um, one of the, the uh, largest assessment companies in the world, they created the GRE as one of our financial backers. And when they when they backed us, we, we told them one of the things we actually want to focus on, which not many people think about is what is the impact on the tutor? And how much more value can we drive out of these interactions, not just for the student on the, the receiving end, but the tutor who's actually giving that help? Right. And so many times we hear stories, countless stories of tutors saying, you know, this helped me really develop my own communication, problem solving skills. I used to be such a deep introvert to my detriment that now I actually have the confidence and the comfort to be able to come out of my shell a little bit. And when it comes to a job interview, I can speak to how me helping 10 or 15 students go from, you know, a D to a, a passing grade in a course helped me become a better leader. And so it's, you know, you hear so much about how higher ed needs to do better to sort of create um, sort of create environments for students to, to build those career skills, the soft skills, right? Communication, problem solving, critical thinking. Well, I would argue the role of a tutor in many ways is not just deepening the subject matter expertise of whatever they're tutoring, but it's also reinforcing those career skills. And we see that and we've doubled down on, on different pieces of our technology to kind of help bolster that. Um, and that is becoming more and more a focus of institutions as well, given, you know, what I shared earlier, which is this ROI is being questioned. Employers are leaning in and saying, wait a minute, we don't need students with a college degree. We can just train them on site. Institutions have to get ahead of that and have to figure out ways to kind of partner with those those um, employers or they'll ultimately be displaced. Um, so those are some of the, the ways in which the tutors are actually getting a lot out of this and, and that the institutions are recognizing as well. We're going to pivot just a bit, but it's going to circle back. Was there a moment? Give, give me that sort of that entrepreneurial moment when when you knew you were you were an entrepreneur, when you were investigating what's going on in higher ed when it comes to tutoring and support. And was there an aha moment that you said, wow, my gut was right. It does need to be sort of flipped on its side here and really re-examined, deconstructed. And I think I've got the answer. Was there a moment, was there a conversation where in your head it clicked and you said, that's it? You know, I think there were themes in the world that I was looking at and experiences that I had personally and professionally that sort of shaped that thinking. And I think it came from as early as being a kid and struggling and remember literally being tested for gifted and feeling 
like a dumb kid because I just couldn't pass that test. And then later find out it's not a test you can pass. It's a, you know, they're sort of challenging you, but, but it put me in a state of, of anxiety and feeling behind at a very young age. And I think having to overcome that over time and then helping others kind of helped me understand like, this is a very powerful thing. And I grew up in a family or, you know, my aunts are teachers. My mom was a teacher for, for a little while. And I remember going to the classroom with her as a kid and just sort of understanding the importance of education. And I think for me, it was, it was growing up in that environment, but then also being so fascinated by technology and what was happening in the mid, mid to late two thousands with, um, with Uber and Airbnb and the sharing economy or the gig economy, as many people call it, you know, it was interesting to me, create economic opportunity on one side. And on the other side, you basically increase access to services. And that's all layered through technology, people being connected with people. And I think that was interesting to me. Um, and, you know, the thesis of NAC was, was to me, I didn't even really feel like we needed to validate it too much because I think it's kind of known that people like peer to peer, people learn and want to collaborate with each other. Right. Even, even, um, music streaming services early on, I remember using, you know, LimeWire and all these different services, all peer to peer in a different context, but it's peer to peer and humans enjoy that community threads, Reddit, like that's all people in, and the, the most, uh, strong, the, the strength, the strongest communities tend to be made up of just people wanting to help people, not because there's a financial benefit there, but because people want to grow and work and learn from each other. And so I kind of felt like that was proven. The question was, could we get college kids to, 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 to hold, to hold on to this experience and kind of continue with wanting to tutor or get tutoring. And, you know, it's hard. College kids are fickle, especially now more than ever, given the generational changes. Um, but I think a lot of this has to do with how the university works with us and we position it to students. Um, we originally started as a direct to consumer business. So we were just going out finding college students. That was more of the proof of concept. Could we get a student to say, okay, I'm willing to tutor. And could we get a student on the other side to say, I'm willing to pay out of pocket for a tutor, even though I'm a broke college kid. And we noticed that students were willing to do it. We noticed students were posting all over Facebook looking for tutoring. In fact, one of my co-founders was, that's one of the ways we, we struck the idea together is he said, I can't even find a tutor for an engineering course. And I'm at a huge university that has a tutoring center. And so I know this problem existed. It was a matter of how can we build a sustainable business around it and build it in a way that's sticky and we can, and, and to really want to be able to engage the students that are historically not engaged. So today, 65% of students that use NAC had never used tutoring in college before. Um, during the pandemic, 70% of our tutors, we had thousands of them, 70% um, of them at, at one of our campuses said was their only form of employment. So again, these, these little nuggets of data that we're finding and continue to find are what inform uh, our strategy and ability to continue to grow. How has this impacted you? I mean, look, it's one thing to have an idea. It's one thing to be observant and bring sort of life experience to the table. It's another thing to be able to package those elements together and then really generate and create a plan, find co-founders, you know, do the whole nine yards and really challenge an industry, but really meet it where its needs are, right? This is not something that is in opposition. This is about sort of... It, my sense from getting to know you is this is about creating a different form of community, right? I mean, wh what a statement when your co-founder said, I can't even find a tutor. Like, I think that would shock people. Like even the psychology of tutoring and the acceptance of tutoring, I think has changed over time because years ago, it would be an acknowledgement that maybe I had a, a deficit in an area. 
-hmm. And that's something that has changed. And so there's a a psychology uh, of the whole thing that has evolved. How has your psychology changed being a learner who's gone through that to an entrepreneur that is trying to provide the solution on both sides? I would say that it's okay to get help, right? That it's okay. And it's actually your, it's a sign of strength to show that you're, you, you need help. And I don't think it's just in tutoring. You know, I think it's the culture around mental health. It's the idea that when I was in middle or, or uh, elementary school or even high school, the idea of like going to a therapist was this like really bad thing. Like, oh man, something must've happened to you. And now I hear friends, coworkers, family members say, the thing I look forward to is going to talk to someone once a week, once a month, whatever it is. Um, and it's not the sign of like, I have some problem. It's the sign of, I want to get better. Right. And, and that's one of the hardest parts about our business is we're not just connecting two people. So we need good intent on both ends. We also need people to take the physical step of saying, I, I know I need help, even though I could go out till 10 PM and party in college tonight. Um, I'm going to hit pause on that and I'm going to pivot to learning because I care about this or I want to seek that out. And on the flip side, I know I could go, you know, hang out with friends or do whatever, but I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to tutor someone. I'll make money with it. But, you know, it's a lot of times the tutors on our platform do it because they don't just care about the money. They care about working with people and and wanting to to see that growth. Um, And so I do think there's, especially with, with um, Gen Z feel like there's been more of this awareness of what's happening um, in the social context of our world and from a, a, a mental health standpoint, understanding the importance of working with each other and respecting each other. You know, I think the world, from what I can see, obviously, you've got a lot of social media and it's, it comes with its, you know, litany of issues. Um, and I think this generation is very aware of that. And I think because thinking about it, I was the generation, probably the last one that grew up without a computer. But then, like, I remember getting one and learning how to type my name and use it. Every kid today that's born is just, it's all they know is computers and social media and that sort of stuff. And um, we were a generation that I think were uh, always looking at things like mental health services or what have you, again, as a form of like, I have something wrong with me. And I think today you're seeing the opposite of like, hey, I'm doing this. And sometimes you even see, you know, some pride in that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's a good thing. Um, And so I think that the perception of services like mental health, like tutoring, right? Personal wellness, um, personal finance, all that sort of stuff, the wraparound to just be better self-help is is hopefully becoming more accepted. So let, let's put a wrap on, on this. Um, I think it's fascinating. Being an entrepreneur is a, it's an ongoing daily lesson in humility, right? Being able to withstand the the gale force winds of of opposition in the market and all these other variables that can impact a success or failure. And you happen to be running a company that is all about learning and about growth and development, right? So it's almost as if you are, you're learning along with the company in a very similar fashion. Do you ever sit back and just find that that's the irony in that, but also the silver <laughs> lining and the benefit for you just as a, as a, as a human being, as a leader of a company, right? And as someone who was willing to go back into the fire, a lot of times if we've had experiences when we're younger, we don't really want to go back into the fire and you've chosen to, and yet you're in an environment where you're constantly learning as you go. Is that a benefit? And do you consider yourself an educator rather than an entrepreneur? Like what fits for you given that backdrop? 
Yeah, no, you know, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty funny. I think by nature of, of what we're doing as a company, we're kind of drinking our own Kool-Aid uh, in a sense, <laughs> you know, where it's a little meta that, that uh, like, if you look at the DNA of our company, you're not going to find any like past major entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneur folks who, you know, had, had done this before. We're all for the most part, first timers in this. And I think that kind of shows this idea of like, we can figure it out. We can learn together. Um, and I think as we, as we think about what's ahead and, and how we want to continue to grow, it is very much of iterating, looking, listening, and learning from others. We have an amazing advisory council, an academic advisory council, and it's headed by um, a gentleman named Dr. George Koo, who is, you know, in many ways, I, I think the godfather of, of student development theory and student success. He's a highly cited individual in the space. And you know, when I got to know him, I was just so excited to meet him and, and kind of share what we were working on. And I didn't know what he would think. And he's become a very close friend of the company's. And, you know, he he's uh, was was very much allergic to the for-profit, you know, side of things and didn't really know how to interact with us as a company. But we've gotten to really work well together. And it, funny enough, you asked the question of like, do you consider yourself an educator? When I first met him, you know, Austin from my team and I were talking to him and we said, you know, Dr. Koo, uh, you know, we need you because we're not, we're not educators. You know, we're just like young guys that want to build something in tech and care a lot about education and, and learning. And he's like, well, hold on, hold on a minute. You know, you are educators and yeah, you're entrepreneurs, but think about what you're doing and how you're learning and how you're hiring and developing others. You all are educators. And, you know, it changed my perspective. I don't have a PhD. I have a bachelor's degree. Um, and, and sometimes it was intimidating to be pitching to a bunch of PhDs and, and presidents and provosts and who, what have you. And, you know, Dr. Koo kind of changed my perspective on that a little bit. So I would say uh, in, in spirit and light of, of that discussion I had with him a few years ago, I would say I do think we are educators in our own way. And I think anyone that is sort of on this continuum of, of growing and learning through life is too. Yeah, learning is human. Right. And yep. it's human to learn. And you're a fantastic exemplar of that. Where can people go to learn more about NAC and or connect with you? Yeah. Um, join NAC.com uh, is our is our website or NACTutoring.com, either one. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active there. It gets a little crowded sometimes, but I'm, I try to <laughs> respond to most folks um, that, that reach out authentically and genuinely. Um, so, yeah, that would be the best place. And um, definitely appreciate you having me on here today, Ron. Well, thank you for entertaining my interest in the rabbit hole that is higher ed and how we can continue to to prop it up in a way that benefits all involved in communities across the, the country and the world. Samir, great pleasure to spend some time with you and continued success. Absolutely. Thank you, Rob. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger. <laughs>